We are finally back in uh, the Gospel of John. So if you don't open your copy of God's Word to the end of John 11. And as you're, as you're turning there, it has uh, been observed by uh, many uh, that dogs love to chase after cars. Uh, and to, to chase after cars uh, is, uh, to chase after things rather, is uh, instinctual to a dog. That's what they were uh, created uh, to do. Uh, but, but even if uh, a dog were to, to chase a car uh, and catch up to it, what would that dog then do with the car, right? Uh, and wouldn't really know what to do at that point. But dogs don't usually catch the cars that they chase. They usually they, uh, they run after a vehicle, but uh, as, they, as they run after that vehicle, they are also unknowingly running out into danger. And there are a variety of other uh, vehicles on the road as they chase uh, a single car. They don't realize the dangers that accompany uh, the pursuit of a vehicle. And so even though chasing after things is, is instinctual for dogs, uh, that, that instinct uh, to run after them well, is more than likely to, to get them killed. When I was uh, in uh, New Mexico... It was uh, an, an evening. We were playing basketball at the, the gym there. And uh, at the end of the, the basketball uh, game, I was taking a group of guys uh, home. Uh, and uh, my, my faded red uh, hot pink Civic loaded down w- with five guys. And, you know, we're driving. Uh, in New Mexico, there's not very many uh, streetlights, similar to, to here, uh, out, driving out in the country. And we were coming up over this hill. And... And a car passes us, and then suddenly right behind uh, that vehicle uh, in my lane uh, is a dog. Now, cha- it was chasing after that other uh, car, uh, but then suddenly it's, it's right in the middle of my lane. Uh, and uh, I didn't have time to, to swerve or to, to do much. And I didn't want to swerve off of the, the road on a, on a hill and on a curve. Uh, and so uh, the, the car uh, won that battle. And that, that dog didn't really know uh, what took place. Just following his instincts, chasing after things. But, but, but this is the danger that encompasses dogs chasing after cars. And you and I have a similar problem. We have, we have instincts that we want to give into. And we have uh, our hearts that are constantly directing us uh, towards uh, various ends. But Jeremiah 17:9 says this, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Even as, as we sang earlier uh, this morning, uh, our, our hearts are, are prone to, to wander, and prone to, to lead us uh, to pursue and chase after things that are not God. Things that will also be, be dangerous for us. This is, a, this is so important for us to, to recognize that simply giving in to, to instincts is not going to, to lead us to the best place. As I shepherd my, my children, I often remind them that, that, I, uh, that I love them and that I discipline and teach them so that they will uh, learn not to pursue certain things. And I repeatedly tell them that, that, that sin leads to sorrow, discipline, and ultimately it may lead to, to death, which is why I teach and instruct them now. now but uh, contrary to that, in contrast to that, 
Now, obedience leads to blessing, joy, and life. This is what we, we see over and over again in the book of Proverbs, and this is what we see over and over again uh, in the Bible as a whole. Uh, and this is a, a lesson that children need to hear frequently, uh, that, that sin leads to sorrow and discipline. But this is uh, in, uh, a lesson that adults need even more frequently than children. Uh, because we have an even greater uh, capacity uh, to pursue the desires of our own hearts, right? When, you're, when your kid misbehaves and begins to, to give in to all of their emotions, what, do you, what are you responsible to do as a parent? To, to shepherd them and say, well, let's not pursue that. That's not a good option. But when you're an adult, that doesn't happen so much, right? We, we have a greater freedom and a greater propensity towards sin. And we must remember that not only are our hearts capable of leading us astray, they more than likely will lead us astray. And if we chase after every fleeting affection, uh, we are uh, at some point or another going to run into dangerous roads. And we are bound to get run over. And the passage that we're going to study in John's Gospel this morning is going to to put these matters on display in a powerful way by, by holding up for us to see a series of contrasts. Uh, of where misplaced devotions can lead us. We just start to to follow after and chase after uh, the desires of our heart. It's going to lead us into danger. This morning we're going to be looking at and and studying uh, John chapter 11, verse 55, uh, through chapter 12, verse 11. And uh, as we come into this uh, new section... Uh, we, we are uh, coming into the final week uh, in Jesus' earthly ministry. And chapter 12 is going to be uh, the culmination of Jesus' public ministry. And chapter 13 is going to, to begin uh, his private ministry to his disciples on the, the final uh, night before his uh, arrest, trial, and crucifixion. Uh, and so chapter 12 is going to, to really build as it goes. And if chapter 11 uh, and the resurrection of Lazarus is going to, was intended to show us that, that Jesus is uh, Lord and Messiah by conquering death, chapter 12 is going to, to show us that Jesus is going to be uh, victorious through his own death. We're going to read and study again. As, let's read uh, beginning in verse 55 this morning. We'll read through the end of our passage in verse 11. Now the the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, Now he should let them know so that they might arrest him. And six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. And Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. And Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. 
Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Father, we ask that you would guide us and direct us as we study your word this morning. Lord, may your truth become clear in our hearts and in our minds. And may you soften our hearts to hear and receive your truth and to apply it to our lives. That we might respond to all that you have said with full and complete obedience giving worship and adoration through your Son to you. In his name, amen. Well, as we study these verses, uh, we're going to see a variety of characters. Uh, We're going to see uh, the crowds of Jews going up to the feast. We're going to see uh, the disciples of Jesus. We're going to see Jesus himself. We're going to see Lazarus, Martha, Mary, Judas Iscariot. We're going to see uh, the chief priests. Now, all of these different characters, uh, the Apostle John is throwing together uh, in this scene. Uh, and he's throwing them all together because by, by throwing them all together, we get to compare and contrast them. We get to see how they respond differently. And as we look at these contrasts, each of them is going to reveal a, a dangerous devotion. Uh, a, a devotion that if given into. Uh, will lead to sorrow, discipline, and maybe even death. And as students of Scripture in the 21st century, you and I have have much to learn here. Because our hearts uh, need the warnings of this passage just as much uh, as uh, those who are reading this in the first century. You and I still have the the same heart desires that can lead us astray. uh, And we need to make note of uh, what we see here so that we can clearly reject these dangerous devotions. That we can see them and run from them rather than to them. And this passage is going to to show us why we must follow God's word rather than following our own hearts. And as we see these three dangerous devotions... uh, We're going to see basically the shipwreck of of some lives. Uh, We're going to see the Lord bringing discipline into other lives. And and, uh, ultimately, especially in the case of Judas Iscariot, it's going to to lead to his death. But let's look at these three dangerous devotions that we see here. And the first is seen in verses 55 through 57. And we could say this is a, uh, a devotion to appearance rather than the heart. If you look at these verses with me again. It says, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Now, as we mentioned in the past, the, the, the Jews in the outlying territories would, would march up to Jerusalem uh, during the times of the feast. So there would be a really long caravan of people going to Jerusalem uh, in uh, the time leading up to it. But also, uh, specifically for uh, the, the, the feasts, uh, some Jews would, would go up early uh, to, to cleanse themselves and make sure that they would go through all of the ceremonies so that they would be acceptable uh, to participate in the feast. In verse 56, we're informed that uh, the, there's a group of Jews standing in the temple and they are they are talking and speculating and debating wondering whether or not jesus was going to attend and they're wondering this because of what we see in verse 57 
the, the religious leaders, the, the chief priests and the Pharisees had kind of uh, done, uh, they put the word on the street, right? They didn't put up wanted posters, uh, but they said, if you have information about Jesus, we want to know. If you see him, tell us, uh, because we're going to arrest him. So there's a, a common public knowledge that the religious leaders are seeking to arrest Jesus. And, and there's a great hypocrisy to this. Because as, the, as it's mentioned that the Jews are, are coming up to Jerusalem to do what? To purify themselves. Right? They need to come up and make sure that they're cleansed for participation in this feast. And that would include the religious leaders. And what are the religious leaders plotting to do at the very same time as going through all of these ceremonies to cleanse themselves? They're plotting murder. They're conspiring to kill. This is a conclusion that they came to earlier or in chapter 11. If you turn back to 1148, this is the, the Sanhedrin had, had gathered. It says, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And he did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. And so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. The Sanhedrin uh, concluded that Jesus must die in order to save the nation. Uh, and uh, what we see in this conspiracy uh, is that th there's a, a focus uh, here uh, by the, the religious leaders, uh, that they are willing to, to go through all of the, the, emo the motions. Uh, they're willing to go through all of these ceremonies to, to purify themselves, for, to, to participate in this feast. But what are they not worried about? Their own hearts before God. Now, they're, they're putting up appearances of, of religion. Uh, but, but this is what Jesus' evaluation of them was in, in Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, and this is a, a dangerous devotion that we are, are prone to, to follow our hearts into. We love to, to make the, the outer man look great while neglecting to deal with our inner man. We, we, uh, we are devoted at times to outward appearances, but not to inner righteousness. This was the, the sin of King Saul back in 1 Samuel 15, as we read last month. Uh, he, he disobeyed God. But what was he still willing to do? Offer sacrifices. He disobeyed, uh, but he's still willing to go through all of the religious motions. And the prophet Samuel came and rebuked him and said this, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices 
as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul's disobedience led to uh, a severe discipline from God. And Saul was willing to make all of these outward expressions of devotion, but he was unwilling to do the basics of inner obedience. And I have this tendency that maybe some of you have as well. I wash the outside of my car more frequently than I wash the inside. Why is that? Well, because what happens to a really dirty car? Uh, Somebody comes up and they write with their finger, wash me, right? And you get public scorn and rebuke. Uh, And so we we go through the motions of, of washing the exterior, but... And you're like, well, I'm, I'm at the, the car wash. Should I pull over and, and vacuum out the inside and throw away all the trash? I don't have time for that. We'll just, we'll just do the, the exterior wash right now, and we'll leave the inside uh, more dirty. But then you know what happens? Sub- suddenly you have to give a ride to somebody, and they see the inside of your car. And then suddenly you see everything that you didn't see before. All, all of the ugliness, all of the dirt, all of the, uh, the, the wrappers and water bottles that were left behind that you've been neglecting, suddenly you are very, very aware of them. And what do you tell the person? Oh, man, I really need to clean out my car. Bear, bear with me, right? Uh, and that's our tendency. When it's exposed, we deal with it. But when it's just seen by us and by God, we tend to neglect it. We, we pass over it. And why is that? Why is it that suddenly when that person sees the inside of our car, we're then motivated to go and clean it? Because what are we, what, what are we secretly devoted to? Outward appearance before others. Well, we were willing to neglect it as long as it wasn't seen. But as soon as it's going to be seen, I've got to go deal with this. We neglect a devotion to growing in godly character because we focus primarily, we are devoted primarily to outward appearances. And we must keep in mind as well that a devotion to godly character really can only be produced by the Spirit of God working in us. As we've been reading in Galatians chapter 5, Paul makes a contrast there, right? Uh, The deeds of the flesh... And the fruit of the Spirit. So even in trying to produce godly character, it's not, I'm just going to try harder because you're still going to fail. That's, that's that hamster wheel of works-based righteousness. But striving to obey God in the power of His Spirit according to His Word is going to be possible. But we don't devote ourselves to that. We naturally devote ourselves as human beings to keeping up appearances before others. It's our default position. And so this is our default position. How do we as Christians stand up against this temptation? Well, first and foremost, I think we we have to remember what God looks at. What does God look at? Does he look at your external appearance? No, he looks at your heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, 
but the Lord looks at the heart. And in Luke's gospel, Jesus speaking to some of the Pharisees says this, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. We, we battle this temptation to focus upon outward appearance only but by realizing God looks first and foremost at our hearts, at our inner man, not our outer man. We also need to remember that, that such external ceremonies do nothing to, to sanctify and transform your heart. Paul deals with this in Colossians chapter 2. After uh, reciting all of these rules, do not taste, do not touch, do not handle, says these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. All of those ceremonies that we put on, they don't actually transform our hearts. Religious rules do nothing to sanctify you, but they will bring judgment upon you because the, the rules uh, that you uh, abide by uh, but reject the, the bigger issues of your, your heart will bring condemnation from God. Because it, it leads you to that focus, that, that devotion to the, the outward appearance rather than the inner life of your heart. This is, this is the first dangerous devotion that we see in this passage. Uh, a, a devotion to appearance rather than heart. But then there's a second contrast, a second dangerous devotion that is revealed to us in verses 1 through 8. A, a devotion to money rather than to Jesus. If you uh, remember this scene, uh, this is the, the scene uh, where Martha is going to be serving, where Lazarus is going to be reclining at the table with Jesus. Uh, and there's going to be others who are, who are there uh, dining. Uh, there, there's a, a banquet being held. Uh, and, and Mary comes in, and she has a very, very expensive uh, bottle of this perfume or this nard. And she's going to, to anoint the feet of Jesus. And it's important to... To distinguish something at the outset, and uh, there's a, a lot of uh, discussion among uh, Bible scholars of, of how this uh, meshes up uh, with uh, other accounts in the Gospels. Now, there's, a, there's parallel accounts in Matthew 26 uh, and Mark 14, and then there's another similar scene described in Luke chapter 7. Uh, and some, some would land and say that all four of these uh, descriptions are, are of the same event. Uh, but I think it, it's probably better to see uh, Matthew 26, Mark 14, and this passage here in John 12 as describing one event. Uh, and uh, the, the situation and the scene in Luke chapter 7 as describing a separate occasion. And there's some, some differences between uh, what we see in Luke chapter 7 and what we see uh, in the parallel accounts here in John, Matthew, and in Mark. In Luke 7, uh, the event takes place early on in Jesus' ministry, uh, and it takes place in Galilee and specifically in the home of a Pharisee. Uh, and uh, it's an unnamed sinful woman who anoints uh, Jesus' feet. 
at that point in time. And uh, the, the commentary from Jesus on that scene, he uses that as a, as a picture, as an illustration to the Pharisee uh, of what it looks like uh, of thankfulness for, uh, by those who have been forgiven for much. Uh, and But in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and here in John 12, uh, this event takes place at the end of Jesus' ministry, and it takes place uh, not in Galilee, but in the south, in Bethany. And it's a ha- in the house of a, uh, a former leper, probably. Uh, and Mary is mentioned by name in all three of the accounts. Uh, and the anointing here uh, points symbolically as a preparation for uh, Jesus' looming death on the cross. But as we look at this scene, Mary comes in and uh, she, she opens uh, this bottle and, and anoints uh, Jesus. And, and the, the emphasis here is upon her humility, her thankfulness, and her, her absolute devotion to Jesus. And this is seen and demonstrated in, in the details of her actions here. Uh, number one, by how expensive the, this nard is. Uh, it would be worth 300 denarii. Uh, or uh, a full year's worth of wages. It's also emphasized that she anointed Jesus' feet, which was typically uh, left to the the most low uh, of servants. Because back then, uh, everybody wore sandals uh, on the roads, and the roads were not paved. Uh, So feet were just really, really gross. Uh, And as you laid down at the table, everyone would kind of uh, put their heads uh, towards the table and their feet would be as far away as possible uh, because they were that gross. And Mary comes in and she anoints Jesus with this perfume. Uh, Matthew and Mark uh, emphasize that that she anointed uh, Jesus' head. Uh, John emphasizes that that she anointed uh, the feet. Uh, There's no contradiction there. She would have anointed him uh, head and and feet and uh, just completely covered him in this uh, perfume. But in addition to uh, this, her devotion is shown in that she, she uses her hair to wipe his feet. Again, going back to the grossness of the feet, but uh, even prior to that, uh, it was very unusual for a Jewish woman to let down her hair at all in public. Uh, But she lets her hair down and she uses her hair to wipe the feet of Jesus. And we're told that the aroma from the nard fills the entire house. uh, And this is brought to our attention, I think, to to point out the extravagant love and devotion that Mary uh, is demonstrating here. Now, but also hinting at that the fact that this fragrance of what she's going to do is going to linger far longer than the act itself. And she demonstrates the utmost humility and devotion here. And in contrast to Mary, so Mary gets one verse here. Right? She, she's, what she does is described in one single verse. And uh, Judith Iscariot gets five verses of response. And, and he uh, objects to what she is doing. And it's, it's funny because John, uh, when, when he mentions Judas here, he cannot help but, uh, but identify him as the, the one who is going to betray Jesus. Uh, and it's, it's interesting because when, whenever G- Judas is mentioned, he is usually identified in this way. Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed. Judas Iscariot, the one who uh, would, would sell uh, his friend Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. It's almost as if John can't even think about or uh, mention the name Judas without thinking of uh, the fact that he betrayed Jesus. We're told that that Judas objects to Mary's act of devotion, saying that this perfume should have been sold and money given to the poor. 
but again, the, the Apostle John makes a point of telling us uh, his real motivation. Uh, it was not to, uh, out of concern for the poor that he is saying this. He is saying this because he himself wants the money. Uh, among the twelve, Judas was the one who carried the money box and says that he was a thief and he would regularly empty out the money box for his own purposes. And so uh, what we see is this contrast of devotions here. Mary is devoted to Jesus and Judas is devoted to money. And uh, a devotion for one will naturally diminish a devotion for the other. Matthew chapter 6 verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters for he were... For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So as your love and devotion to one grows, your devotion to the other will diminish. One day a distraught man rode up to speak to John Wesley, the great pastor and theologian. And he brought news to Mr. Wesley. He says, Mr. Wesley, something terrible has happened. Your house burned to the ground. John Wesley pondered that for a moment and he calmly replied. He says, no, the Lord's house burned to the ground. And that means one less responsibility for me. When we are serving God, first and foremost, earthly possessions lose their appeal But a devotion to money will always diminish our devotion to God, and it will lead us into other sins as well. As Judas uh, was greedy for money and wealth, what did it lead him to do? It led him to additional sins, lying and stealing in order to obtain what he wanted most. Uh, And uh, this is also seen uh, with Gehazi, the the servant of Elisha the prophet. Uh, He he lies in order to receive a reward from Naaman. It's also seen uh, by Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 8. They lie to the apostles and to God about how much they were uh, giving. They were taken in judgment. But Jesus responds to Judas's comment with a with a stern rebuke, and his words are are difficult to discern the meaning of, and we kind of have to piece certain things together from the parallel passages as well. Uh, but he says, in essence, leave her alone. Uh, and the best idea of what he is saying here that she, she obviously doesn't keep uh, the uh, this uh, bottle of perfume because she pours it out completely upon Jesus, but uh, she she keeps the the honor uh, and the glory of this act. Uh, because it, it points to and prepares Jesus for his looming death. So in that sense, what Mary does here is very similar to what we, we read earlier from Caiaphas. Caiaphas spoke, but he didn't even realize what he was speaking. God was using him as the high priest to speak something prophetically about Jesus dying for the nation. Uh, and I think Mary is coming in, in thankfulness uh, for Jesus raising up her brother Lazarus. She, she's coming and expressing devotion and love and, and appreciation to Jesus for what he has done. But she is also symbolically uh, preparing him for his death, which looms on the horizon. And in one of the parallel passages in in Mark, uh, we see uh, that that Jesus, uh, his rebuke to Judas uh, in this situation uh, prompts Judas to immediately go out and he begins to, to meet with the chief priests. Right. Word was out on the street. If you have news about where Jesus is. Come speak to us. And Judas goes and he speaks. And he begins to make those plans to betray his friend, this man who has walked with him faithfully for three years. And Judas would ultimately betray his friend, his teacher, the Son of God, for 30 pieces of silver. Why? Because that's what he was devoted to. 
And the Apostle John wants us to reflect upon the difference here between Mary and Judas. Mary was acting out of devotion to Jesus, and Judas was acting out of devotion to money. Mary believed that Jesus was more valuable than money, and Judas believed that money was more valuable than Jesus. And Judas' devotion to money led him to such infamy that his name could scarcely be mentioned by the, any of the apostles without... Uh, it's almost like they were spitting every time they mentioned his name. Yeah, the, Judas the traitor. Right, do you know anybody named Judas? I've never met somebody named Judas. Just think about the, uh, the, the heritage. Nobody wants to be identified even with that name. But in contrast to that, Mary's devotion to Jesus led her to, to humble herself before him. And for that, she has been blessed and honored among women. It's not recorded here, but in, in Matthew and in Mark, it says that wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, that this woman... Uh, what she has done will be spoken of in memory of her. That still reigns true today. Now, it's not a, a sin to be wealthy, but it is a sin to devote yourself to pursuing and storing up wealth in this life. We, we are commanded to store up treasure where? In heaven. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 says, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. First Timothy 6, verse 17 says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Now, a devotion to Jesus will, will gradually diminish your devotion to money in this world. But the inverse is also true. So we must guard our hearts. We can only serve one. That's the dangerous devotion that we see here. First, we saw a devotion to appearance rather than the heart. Here we saw a devotion to money rather than Jesus. And then a, a third dangerous devotion is seen in verses 9 through 11. A devotion to power rather than truth. As we read earlier, it says, When a large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So the, the chief priests, the religious leaders, are, are seeing uh, all of these people flocking after Jesus. But they're not only coming to see Jesus, they're coming to see this guy that he raised from the dead. Word has gotten out, and uh, how do you deny Lazarus, right? I mean, he, he's living proof uh, that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. Uh, and so the, the chief priests, in seeing and evaluating all of this, they say, okay, we've got to kill this guy too. Lazarus needs to die. And there, there's multiple layers of, of irony here because... Uh, the, the chief priests uh, were also primarily made up of, of Sadducees, and, and the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. So, so with Lazarus, they have double trouble. Right? He, he is proof of who Jesus is. He's also proof that their own beliefs about the resurrection are wrong. And so they said, we, we must kill him. And this is, this is interesting because they're kind of at a decision point, right? They could say, maybe we need to reevaluate what we believe. 
right? In, in light of all that we have seen, in light of all that Jesus has said and done, maybe we need to reevaluate the conclusions that we've come to. They say, no, we don't need to do that. We just need to kill Jesus and Lazarus. Now, they're willing to, to sacrifice Jesus and Lazarus and the truth in order to get what they want, in order to maintain their position of power. They're willing to sacrifice anyone and anything because that is what they worship most. There's a, a Russian opposition leader named Alexei Navalny. He's an, an outspoken critic of uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin. Back on, on August 20th of 2020, while on a domestic flight within Russia, Navalny became violently ill. They had to, to do an emergency landing. Uh, and when they got on the ground, couldn't figure out what was going on uh, with him. They put him in a coma and they evacuated him uh, over to Berlin. And in Berlin, they realized that there was a, a nerve agent that had been used uh, on Alexei Navalny. Uh, and uh, so that, all that happened on August 20th. On September 7th, he began to, his condition began to improve. And so they, they pulled him out of this medically induced coma. And the European Union uh, imposed sanctions upon several Russian officials, but, but prosecutors within Russia never pressed any charges, claiming they found no evidence that a crime had been committed. And on January 17th uh, of, the, of last year, 2021, Navalny returned to Russia from Germany, and he was immediately detained at the airport uh, and then placed uh, on a two-and-a-half-year sentence in a, uh, in, a, in a prison just outside of Moscow. But it's amazing what... Uh, po- people in political positions will do with anybody who opposes them, right? And it's ugly in the world, right? Even the world looks at that and says, that's horrible. But it's even worse when those types of things are uh, taking place among God's people. Right? These are the, the religious leaders in Israel who were saying, these two guys got to go. This isn't a Russian oligarch. These are supposed to be the religious leaders in Israel. They're committed not to the truth, but to their own power and position. And anyone who's devoted to power and position will be willing to, to sacrifice and silence the truth. Truth is the friend of every honest leader and the enemy of every dishonest leader. And we must never sacrifice the truth in order to maintain any power or position. And you might be thinking, well, I don't do that. Like, I don't sacrifice the truth. To maintain power and position, well, think about the last argument that you had with somebody. Maybe your spouse, maybe a child, maybe a parent, maybe a neighbor. How did you think about and represent what happened? Did you hold up what took place with absolute honesty, unbiased, or did you maybe nudge the truth a little bit? Exaggerating here, minimizing there, right? What were you willing to do with the truth in order to maintain your position or your power? Maybe it's just, I wanted to be right. What were you willing to do with the truth in order to, to maintain that status of being right? You say, oh, I, I wouldn't do that. Well, where, does it, where do you think this began with the, with the Sadducees and the religious leaders? Do you think they want to be right about Jesus? What have they said about him? He's a charlatan. He's leading people astray. We've got to handle him. He's wrong. 
They want to prove themselves right. They're willing to do anything to accomplish that. Devotion to power begins small and grows over time. And it's a, even a small devotion to power rather than to truth will, will lead us astray. We have to see things for what they truly are, not as we see them or as we want them to be, but what does God say about this situation? And if we sacrifice a little bit of truth to maintain our status, we're wandering into this same dangerous devotion as the religious leaders here. That's what we see here in this passage. Three dangerous devotions. Devotion to appearance rather than heart, to money rather than Jesus, and to power rather than truth. And we, we have to see these dangerous devotions for what they are. Uh, as the little seeds that can grow into the sins and idols that will destroy our lives. Each of these grows or starts small and grows as we feed it. And, and the longer these devotions, the, these wrong desires exist in your life, uh, they get bigger and bigger and bigger. Ever see that, that horror movie, The Blob? It moves through the town and it just kind of absorbs and eats everything in its path. That's what these sins will do. Uh, they will eat up everything in your life. You become like the, the blob monster. Brad Bigney in his book Gospel Treason says this. Idolatry is false worship. Living on substitutes. It's living your life with something other than God fueling your engine. And it doesn't work very well. You can drive your car with watered-down gasoline, but it will sputter and leave you on the side of the road a lot. Likewise, instead of recognizing our real problem, we try to create better substitutes that fail less often and with less severe consequences. But instead of finding better substitutes or more lifelike counterfeits, we need to repent of our idolatry and come back to the real thing. God, we need to come back to the Savior and the treasure of the gospel that has set us free from all the idolatrous tentacles that keep wrapping around our hearts. We need to develop an unwavering eye for detecting and destroying idols as soon as they begin to creep in. That's why we have to to make note of these dangerous devotions here. So that we, we see them as they begin to make inroads into our life. And idols are, are typically things that we turn to for one of two things. We turn to them because they think they're gonna, that they are going to solve our problems or that they are going to bring satisfaction to our hearts. And idols ultimately uh, are never going to be able to satisfy our sinful desires. They just create more and more, greater and greater desires for sin. And Jesus won't satisfy your sinful desires either. But he will solve problems. He will show you a better way because he is able to transform your heart. He's able to, to give you new desires. And the truth of his word is able to, to help you see and identify what you've been pursuing that you should not be pursuing. What you've been feeding, how that blob monster in your life has come about. Jesus is the fountain of living water. And some believe that and turn to him in devotion, like Mary. Others 
still seeing and beholding all that Jesus has said and all that Jesus has done, are still not willing to believe. Rather than believe, they reject everything that he has said and everything that he has done. And that doesn't mean that they're not worshiping anything. It means that they're worshiping something else. As we see over and over here in John's Gospel, they're turning to other things. Money, power, outward appearance, thinking they can just play this game. But if you're here this morning and, and you feel like there is this, this blob monster in your life, that there is sin that is just eating up and destroying your time, your energy, your thoughts, your emotions, if you're feeling that way, I want to tell you there is hope and there is help for you in Jesus. He is able to, to show you how you got to where you are, and he's able to, to lead you in a better path. He lived and died and rose again so that we could be set free from sin, that we could be brought in as sons and daughters, right? And, and I want you to, to be encouraged because sometimes we feel like we are the only ones who might struggle with something. And we are the only ones with that blob monster in our hearts and in our lives. But listen to this of what the Apostle Paul said to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So before you came to know Christ, you were enslaved to things that were not God. You were worshiping idols that enslaved you. And then verse 9 But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once more? He's saying, since you've been set free from that, why do you keep turning back? That's that's our tendency, right? We see dangerous devotions within our hearts and in our lives. We say, that needs to change. I need to turn from that. But what do we still find ourselves doing? turning back to the same things that used to enslave us. And we have to see these dangerous devotions. And rather than just saying, I need to stop, we need to turn to Jesus in faith. No longer relying upon ourselves, but trusting in His Word, His wisdom, and His Spirit to lead us and guide us in this battle. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to devote yourself to cultivating a heart an inner heart, an inner character of Christ like this. Not an outward appearance, but an inner person like Christ. You're called to devote yourself to the worship and service of God. And you're called to devote yourself to the truth because the truth will do what? It will set you free. 